My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. Finance rules the world. And at the core of finance, uh, we all interact with it through the banking system. My guest today uh, is a longtime banking industry veteran. He's a, a dear friend and just a great overall human being. Urban Ashford, thanks so much for making time uh, to be with us on my brother podcast today. Uh, you have a busy schedule, so I want to dive right into it. Why don't you start out with just a quick uh, you know, few minutes to introduce yourself and sort of how you arrived at the point where you are in life today? All right. Well, thank you, Lalu. I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. My name is Irvin Ashford Jr. I happen to be the Chief Community Officer for Comerica Bank. Comerica Bank is the largest bank headquartered in Texas. Uh, we're a, a, a regional bank, a super regional bank, um, who uh, has operations in Michigan, California, Arizona, Florida, and Texas. Um, my role at uh, Comerica is I'm responsible for external affairs, um, our community uh, programs, um, our um, some compliance units, uh, some philanthropy. I'm kind of a jack of all trades at Comerica with regards to the community. But most importantly, that can be summed up into some basic words. I'm responsible for raising the expectations of what a bank can be uh, in the communities we serve, but in particular, what a bank can be in low to moderate income communities, because these are the communities that need us the most. Absolutely. As uh, someone who is an entrepreneur, I know all too well the value of having good banking relationships and Comerica is, in fact, uh, known for that. But Irv, I want you to take us back to where it began. Where were you born? And tell us a little bit about your early upbringing. Ooh, so uh, many moons ago, I was born in New York City. Um, so I happen to be from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, uh, the LES, as we call it. Um, it's a, a, a unique neighborhood in, in that it's a extremely diverse neighborhood full of immigrants. It's the, the neighborhood uh, very closely adjacent to Ellis Island. And so as people arrive from the old world to the new, they kind of were dropped off in my neighborhood. And so my neighborhood uh, where I was born is an amalgamation of different cultures and backgrounds. It happens to be both black and Hispanic and Jewish and Polish and Eastern European and South African. And I mean, everything is kind of thrown in there. However, uh, 50 years when I was 50 years ago when I was born there it was predominantly a black and Hispanic uh, with little enclaves of other cultures. Today, the Lower East Side is, uh, you know, it's New York City. It's the new New York where uh, tenement houses that went for $80 a month you know, 20 years ago are going for $8,000 a month now. 
And so the community is diverse. Um, my family uh, who has spent uh, almost their entire existence down on the Lower East Side from when they made the migration from the South in, in the 20s and 30s ended up there after a stopover in Brooklyn and we ended up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, so from there, uh, I, I was lucky enough when I was a, a young person. Now, now, mind you, when I say the Lower East Side of Manhattan, I grew up in public housing. Mm. So as you know, people that are from urban places or the hood, you know that as the projects. So I grew up. Okay, you, you faded out. I can hear you again now. Yeah, okay. So um, start from when you said the projects and then if it, it faded out. Okay, sorry, the phone rang. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the projects of the Lower East Side uh, uh, and with very humble beginnings. Uh, humble means, you know, we were poor, mm. um, not poor in spirit or poor in mind or poor in love, but certainly poor in finances. Mm. Um, Luckily, when I was roughly 13 years old, uh, I happened to be a boys club kid and I was able to take uh, an after two tests uh, with the boys club. I scored well and the boys club sent me away to boarding school. And so I left New York at 13 years old to go to a place called Bell Buckle, Tennessee. And in Bell Buckle, Tennessee, I attended the Webb School. Uh, the web school is the oldest continuous uh, running private slash boarding school in the South. It was founded in 1870. Uh, so I, I was able to go there. Uh, you know, it was a change from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I did well. I maintained my scholarship at the web school because I had good grades and, and I worked my way through by washing dishes you know, at the school every day and doing other odds and end chores, because as you know, nothing is free. <laughs> and I believe I was roughly the second or third African-American ever to graduate from the web school. So, um, you know, I, I made history there. And as a matter of fact, I happen to now be on its board of directors. So I'm certainly the, uh, the first African-American to serve on its board. Wow, that's that's truly remarkable. So you said you were in the boys club and this was just something your parents had you involved with? Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I was an urban kid, a street kid from the projects. And so my, my uh, upbringing, my existence wasn't too difficult from other kids in the neighborhood. And so I was out on the streets doing street stuff and Luckily, uh, the educational slash sports person, and I, I never will forget his name. His name was Ron, and we called him Mr. Ron. One day I was walking by the boys club, not inside of it, but just walking by it. And he says, hey, Irv, you need to come here on Saturday. We're going to have a party. And there's going to be Twinkies and Ding Dongs and Yoo's and Chips, Doritos. And I was like, oh, certainly I'll show up. 
But then he says, but first you got to take a test. I was like, I ain't taking no test. And he said, no, this will be a good test for you to take. And the reward will be your Twinkies. And as a fat, chubby little kid who couldn't resist sweets, I said, all right, I'll go take this test. And the test was an aptitude test. And it was the beginning stages of the Boys Club educational program. And back then, the Boys Club, because it wasn't the Boys and Girls Club just yet, the Boys Club would send kids from New York City to boarding and private schools all over the United States, primarily on the East Coast. So we're talking Andover, Exeter, Choate, you know, the who's who named private schools that the Kennedys went to, for example. And it just so happened that I did well enough to go there for the summer. And so when I went for the summer, it was kind of like a vacation. It was like the fresh air fun. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, the Fresh Air Fund is a program that takes inner city, mainly poor kids, and you get to leave and go to farms and outside of city environments for the summer so that you can get a break and breathe and <laughs> eat peas and, and just kind of live your life as a kid, fish, hunt, do these sorts of things. So I thought what I was going to was going to be a Fresh Air Fund sort of situation but it happened not to be it was an educational situation Mm -hmm. um and so i went to a college preparatory school and luckily i did well and so you know oddly enough while i did not do as well when i was back in new york city public schools right i was i was a barely passing socially promoted kid when i was in new york when i happened to go to tennessee Bell Buckle, Tennessee, I, who knew it? I was actually smart. And I guess the test and the aptitude test reflected that I was actually a smart person. Mm. Certainly, I needed remediation. I needed help. I needed to know how to conjugate verbs and certain mathematical principles, et cetera. But my mind was like a sponge and, and, and mainly being able to be in a new, fresh, clean, safe, healthy environment allowed me to concentrate and focus on other things. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I was able to get the full scholarship and I graduated three years later and, and, you know, the rest is history. So how did you manage the transition? I mean, being away from New York, being away from your, your, your folks, I don't know if you have siblings, what was that adjustment like? So the adjustment was difficult. Um, Anytime you go from, you know, experiencing soul food, fried chicken, collard greens, or or, um, sandwiches from your local bodega, and you have to go to the deep south and eat a different type of cuisine, it's difficult. Anytime you're not waking up around your family and friends, that's difficult. But again, my home life back then was also difficult. So you're growing up in a situation in public housing where you know there, there are, uh, the environment isn't as conducive for learning and thriving as one would want. Um, and so there were some challenges at home there. Um, the way I survived is because I am from the Lower East Side of Manhattan 
things kind of roll off your back. You learn to deal with adversity at a very young age. As a New Yorker, you learn how to travel and take care of yourself, handle yourself in a particular way at a very young age. So for example, a 10 year old New Yorker probably has the social intelligence, mental acuity and agility of, you know, a 20 year old somewhere else. And so when I was uh, when I left New York and went to Tennessee, to, to be quite frank and honest, outside of kind of some of the, the, the racial things, the, the environmental things, the rest of it was a piece of cake. And, you know, you, I didn't have to battle the same demons and dragons that I had to battle in New York um, in Tennessee. And the, the demons that I had or the dragons that I had to battle in Tennessee was something that we all battle every day. So I was able to drop off some of the, the, the extra issues and take up learning. So it was it was difficult. It was it was, um, you know, I was by myself. And so when I say by myself at any given time on the campus, there may have been one other black student, right? One or two other black students. There certain, certainly weren't any black faculty. There were black kitchen staff and black cleaning service folks. And of course they took me under their wing, helped me, you know, made me my soul food when I needed it, took me to get my hair cuts when I needed it. And then I also had the, the great fortune of meeting, interacting, and being accepted and taken in by a local family of one of my fellow students um, who also happened to be uh, from New York. Mm. And this person was on the basketball team with me. I was a, a, a four-year starter on the basketball team. Notice how I didn't mention I played basketball at first because yeah. I could have I could have started the story by telling you I was a prep basketball star, right? But I, I didn't purposely because it's not as important as the other story. Yeah. But my, my, my fellow basketball player, uh, teammate, I guess he would go home and speak to his parents about me and the things that I was going through. And I think that there were some issues or talk about I would leave the school, right? Because someone may have called me the N-word or called me, you know, something out of uh, character. Mm -hmm. um, I think they all didn't know that I wasn't that type of person. And what they were giving to me, feeding me, subjecting me to was nothing compared to what I was going through at home. Really yeah. piece of cake. Um, and... So, so by the way, this family, the, the family, they're the Smiths and the Smiths took me in and treated me like a son because they didn't want me to leave. Mm. And, and I'll tell you the story of how I met them, because I, I, I think it's important for your audience, particularly when we deal with how you help and give back and treat other people. So after a basketball game or during the basketball game in the fall, I heard a guy yelling at me from the stands. He's yelling at me and riding me the whole game. Pass the ball, pass the ball. Maybe I was gunning. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But he says, you can't be Earl the Pearl and Willis Reed at the same time. So I, I would get the rebound and just go up and, and do whatever it is I had to do. So he's trying to tell me 
pick which one you're going to be and concentrate on that. But all from the stands. After the game, uh, you know, as in, in most sports, people wait for you after the game in the hallway, in the tunnel, and, and you get dressed and you come back out. So as I came out, uh, 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 about a 50-year-old white guy comes up to me. He had overalls on, and he had uh, manure still on his boot from the day's work. And he comes up to me and he says, hey, I understand that people are messing with you. He didn't use the word mess. He used the other word. Yeah. And I didn't say one word because I didn't know who he was. And he said, from this day forward, no one is ever going to mess with you again. This is the first words out of his mouth. Mm. And he says, so if I have to call the governor and get some people down here to take care of this mess, I'm going to do that but nobody's going to mess with you again. And so again, I'm looking at him in amazement and uh, some wonderment, like, who is this dude? Like, where'd you come from? Mm. Next words out of his mouth. On Friday, you be ready. I'm going to come back and get you. Don't be late. And he hands me a card and on the card, it was a tan card with dark brown writing. And it said, Gardner Smith Eastfield Farms. And Gardner Smith, Pop, happened to be the father of my teammate who was my best friend uh, at the time and who later became my brother. His name was Tuppy Winthrop. And Winthrop's father had heard so much about me from his son, he didn't want me to disappear, to fade. He didn't want me to leave. He didn't want me to, not to take advantage of the opportunity that was presented me because he was from New York and he understood the opportunity that was presented to me. And as a result of that interaction, I used my uh, street smarts to determine that this wasn't a scam. He wasn't going to kidnap me, uh, you know, do foul things to me. He was a legitimate adult person that was taking an interest in my development. And I was there waiting for him Friday at three o'clock and he took me home. Mm. And so the, the rest is history. The side note to that, uh, he and his wife were New York transplants um, from a, a, a well-to-do family, part of the 400, mm. a social registered family. Uh, my mom's... Uh, family is deep into banking. Her, her grandfather was undersecretary of the treasury who helped start the Federal Reserve. He was one of the 13 uh, signatures that created the Federal Reserve. And he was CEO of one of the major banks in the United States that still exists today. And so I tell that story for your audience um, and for, for our people, Black people. You never know who's going to help you. You know, you never know who's going to step up for you, who's going to love you. It may not look in the, in the way that you're used to seeing it. It may look a different way. But I, I think the creator, God, um, if you're spiritual, whatever deity you believe in, they... Uh, act in ways that you may or may not understand, but you have to be ready to accept the blessing. Yeah. 
And so in particular, that was my blessing, right? I could have said, I'm not messing with you. Who are you? I'm not going anywhere with you because it, it was a risk I was taking. I had a stranger coming up to me and telling me I'm going to take you with me. Um, but I just kind of knew, you know, the streets, my, my third eye and my fourth eye and my fifth eye that I developed over time told me that this was going to be okay. And it ended up being okay. So oddly enough, now I'm a banker. And who would have thought it? I certainly didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. You know, that's a good point to segue back to. You go through this incredible um, high school experience. At some point, you have to start thinking of what happens in the next phase. So how how does college happen? How do you go about making a selection? And take us, sort of walk us through that part of your life. Okay. So again, while I had... Uh, access to an incredible experience. Again, I was still from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, still from a poor family. And while I knew I would go to college, I didn't necessarily know about how to go about it. Mm. And so luckily, because I played sports, I had some teams that just automatically offered me some scholarships and positions at their school. So I ended up getting a lot of uh, I was recruited by some schools. And, and so I, I kind of knew, okay, I, I know I can go. Mm-hmm. Um, also at the time, I was recognized as a United States Army Reserve Scholar Athlete. And so they picked kind of four in the country, one in the Northeast, Southeast, out West, um, Midwest sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, while I won this, won a medal and all of the things associated with that. No one ever told me. I never knew. So they sent the the award, the letter, and all of that stuff to the school, but no one in the school ever told me, (laughs) right? And so I found out about it a year later. Someone happened to go through the desk at the gym and found it, and I got it, right? So I, I tell you that story because even though great things can happen to you, you know, the, the system sometimes is always, you know, trying to work against you. The system may be knocking you and everybody always isn't on your side. People don't always want to see you win. Clearly, had I known that I had this other opportunity, maybe I would have applied to some of the, a military academy, right? A service academy. Maybe I would have done that because I would have said, hey, y'all like me. Let me apply for this. It just so happened that Claudia Smith, when I was thinking about college, she told me, and she she didn't give me too much of a a choice. She said, you're going to go to Oberlin College. And Oberlin College is a a, a well-known, highly selective liberal arts college, first college in the United States to allow Blacks and women to attend. Um, It's in Oberlin, Ohio, right on the Underground Railroad. Mm. Um, in fact, in the middle of Tappan Square, the square in Oberlin, there's a railroad tracks coming out of the ground to signify this is part of the Underground Railroad. Mm. And Mrs. Smith, mom, Claudia told me this is where you're going to go. And this was the reason. The reason was you're still black. Don't get it twisted just because you went to this fancy boarding school 
I don't want you to think that the world is going to view you and treat you that way. You need to go to a place that will treat you with love. You have this experience, the boarding school experience. Now go get this experience, the liberal arts college experience. That's the reason why I showed up to Oberlin and uh, they happened to give me a basketball scholarship too. That made it easy for me to make the decision. So I went to Oberlin College. Um, I would love to be able to tell you that there was some grand plan, a gesture I had in the back of my mind, and I always knew where I was going to end up, where I was going to go, where I was going to be. However, that's not the case. I would have gone anywhere. I would have gone to community college. I would have gone to the university of anywhere if the opportunity presented itself to me. It just so happened that I had somebody point me in that direction and I had the ability, the skills, you know, the aptitude to go and do it. And luckily I went to Oberlin College, which was a great experience for me. What did you major in and what was the experience like uh, being at Oberlin? So I majored in or I graduated with a degree in religion. So for almost all four years, I was taking economics classes. Um, and what I kind of realized about three years in that I had a special aptitude for uh, theology and, and religious courses. I, you know, I, I thrived on it. I, I have a, a fairly good memory. And so I was able to read large volumes of, of information, and read biblical texts and associated with other biblical texts uh, in the old and new Testament, or I was able to read the Quran and associate that with another uh, biblical text. And I started getting these good grades. Uh, my junior year, I studied abroad in London. And so I studied physics and um, philosophy in London. So I studied Charles Darwin, uh, Hume and Locke, and the history of how science or philosophy turned into science and science turned maybe into religion and philosophy and how they all were intertwined. And I did really well at it. And so as a result, I was like, hey, you know, maybe I can go be, you know, a preacher or something. Or, I, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do again, but I, I knew I was good at a thing. And, you know, economics is the study of how people utilize scarce resources, right? It's the same with religion. It's the study of how people utilize their spiritual time, which is also a scarce resource, mm -hmm. right? How you put time in and what you get out of it, how you serve, how you provide service to yourselves, your fellow man, your community, your brothers, et cetera. And so there's a lot of similarities between economics and religion. And so I happened to be good at both. I settled on religion. I graduated uh, with degree, a degree in religion, um, after which I happened to, I uh, was selected as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow of International uh, Studies. Uh, and so, that scholarship allowed me to go to the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT. And so then I graduated uh, with a, finance, a public finance degree from UT. 
And that was my specialty. I wrote my thesis on healthcare financing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I still have it. It's in the LBJ library. Anybody can go and, and look at it. Uh, about 120 pages of gobbledygook, but it, it got me <laughs> what I needed to graduate. Uh, and then a few years after that, I got an MBA from the University of Dallas, um, which, which was really good for me because I was able to work and get my business degree at the same time. Uh, last year, I was actually fortunate enough to be uh, inducted into the Business School's Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I took that test when I was 13 years old to eat the Twinkie, who knew that it would lead to all of these kind of steps and stepping uh, stones for me to better myself? Mm -hmm. Over time, think I went from the projects to boarding schools to a top liberal arts school to a top state university with a top 10 public policy school. I was able to also graduate from UD, the University of Dallas, which is one of the better uh, schools here in the Metroplex that produces uh, business students and, and business leaders. All of that was because I was willing to take the chance. So when you ask me about my journey, how I got here, I got here because I was willing to take the chance and others helped me, they pushed me, they prodded me, you know, they poked me when I was falling down or sloughing off, they was like, no, we got something you need to do, don't waste your talent. And because of it, I was able to, to, to be here. So I want you to unpack some of that for me a bit you finish Oberlin, you go for this fellowship, the Woodrow Wilson um, Fellowship. What's the transition between that fellowship experience and you ultimately resuming school uh, at UT? What happened in between those times? So that's an interesting question that you asked me. You're going to love this answer. So I graduated uh, in December. So I actually had some time between December and May and December and the following September when I would go to school. Okay. So the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship would have paid for me to go to any of the top 30 public affairs schools in the United States. So I could have gone to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or any of these schools had I gotten in. And luckily I got into UT, the LBJ school. And so I had some time. The Smiths, mom and pop said, hey, you need to go see the world. And so what they did was they purchased tickets for me and my sister to go to Africa. And we spent, you know, three or four months in Africa, basically the following semester in Africa, traveling together, seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, my pop told me, you think you're poor, but you haven't seen poverty. And you need to see this so that these that experience will inform your decision. So actually, I was fortunate and we were fortunate not only to go to Africa, but we went to India first. Uh, we spent some time in northern Africa, Egypt. Notice I didn't say the Middle East. I said northern <laughs> Africa, Egypt, because people tend to try to separate Egypt from Africa. Sure. And then I also spent time in... East Africa. So 
I went to Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, um, and uh, spent some time in India, Mumbai, uh, mm. Cairo. And so I basically flew to all of those places and then went back through all of those places on the way out. Mm. And so you asked me about the transition to college. That was my transition to college, right? Because I was able to see the world as it actually existed for our brothers and sisters and other places. So I kind of knew being an American was a special privilege, mm. right? That our and my forefathers fought for, fought for us to have a place here, built this place. And so when I went to these other places, one of the first things you think, not when you're there, but when you come back, is whoo, thank God we live here. <laughs> and I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what other countries you go to. That's a fantastic country. As an American, when you come home, you feel like you're home and you feel like, okay, I'm back. And while I can appreciate these other places, I love these other places. I love Africa, love Europe, love visiting other places. When you're back in the United States, you end up feeling like, oh, I'm back. Now I can get it and get to it, get on it. And so my sister and I did that for a while. Uh, we traveled, we hitchhiked, we went on safari, we went to Victoria Falls, saw the pyramids, uh, uh, saw uh, what's on the walls of the pyramids. We went to the museums, saw the faces at the museum. So it gave me an extra boost, an extra confidence. I went to the great Zimbabwean ruins in Zimbabwe um, where our ancestors built these colossal big uh, structures that still stand today about, you know, a thousand years later, or in Egypt, in this case, you know, 4,000 or 5,000 years later, we saw things. And then once I saw that, I knew, okay, I come from great stock. Yeah. No excuse. You know, if, 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 if my great, great, eight, eight, 20 great grandpa could do it, I could do it too. So it gave me a sense of, of accomplishment, of belonging, of, I, I finally felt you know, what that African part of being African-American actually means. Yeah. And so it didn't mean slavery. It didn't mean I was a slave because that's not where we began. That was a pit stop in our history, a, 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 a long, tiring, murderous pit stop. But it was only a pit stop. That's not where we began. We began in other places. And so that gave me the strength to say, OK, now I got it. And so since then, I was always very comfortable in my skin. You know, I am who I am. It is what it is. And so I think, you know, once I knew that there was nothing that I can do, there's, there's, there's no amount of cosmetic changes, cutting my hair, shaving my hair, lightening my skin. There's nothing that I can do that's going to make me other than this six foot three, big 300 pound black man, right? And I knew then, but what I also have is a heart and a mind and a spirit, and I have ancestors and I have a history that I can draw upon. And I can use all of those gifts and talents to help other people and be a contributor to society. So that was my transition. 
So you matriculate at UT, um, at the LBJ School, you studied public finance, which is, in, in fact, an essential uh, subject matter and has significant implications on society at large, even though people don't think about it. How did you then apply what you learned to starting sort of your first career? And what was that first job? So what I learned at the LBJ school is, you know, there's, there's a saying that the LBJ school has, students had back then, particularly since we were right across the street from the law school. Mm-hmm. And the saying is, we don't practice law, we make it. Right. And so there's a sense of there's a little bit of arrogance there, right? As an LBJ or, you know, given he was president, also the one that signed in uh, and helped pass legislation that affects people of color the most still to this day. Um, and so what I learned there is I wanted to use my gifts, talents, experience, and give back to the communities where I came from. I wanted, whether that was in New York or anywhere, a similarly situated community. And so actually when I graduated, I went back to New York City and I worked at a nonprofit as director of economic development in the very neighborhood where I grew up, right across the street, kind of down the block from that boys club I went to. And so it was very fulfilling because oftentimes people that grow up in humble beginnings and, 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 and hard places when you get out and you make it, you want to leave and go real far away from that. Right. <laughs> like, and I understand why Sure. But for me, I, I, I wanted to help, you know, that was my hood. That's where I'm from. That's where my family still lives. And so I wanted to just contribute. I, I had that. You asked me about the journey. I think that, the experience I had in Africa, the experience I had at the web school where the web model is do nothing on the slide. The experience I had in Africa where I got to see our people where everybody happened to be black, the cop, the judge, the pilot, the bank teller, everyone was black, right? So it was one of the first times I felt kind of totally at ease and peace. Nobody was watching me, surveilling me or any of that. And I was like, ooh, this feels good. (laughs) This feels good. When I went to the LBJ school and I got more knowledge and information and practical experience because we had the the servant leaders and servant students, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to go and help people that were from community communities that were similar to mine. So I went back and worked at a local nonprofit. It was uh, the uh, People's Inc. It was the People's Economic Opportunity Project of the Lower East Side. And we, as the nonprofit organization, own real estate. We were one of the largest real estate, nonprofit real estate owners in lower Manhattan. We owned the credit union. And so we had access to capital and finances, basically a bank. And I knew, okay, I can use those tools to help better the community. Um, and so some of the projects that I worked on while I was there, I helped uh, install the, the first ATM in the neighborhood uh, and, and probably in a mile, two mile radius. So mind you, in New York City, that's a long way for people to walk. <laughs> and, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people that live in that neighborhood and they had to walk a long way 
mainly more to towards the, the wealthier parts of town, the whiter parts of uh, Manhattan to get to a bank because this is when banks kind of fled the neighborhood. And so I put in an ATM machine, which, which was fantastic. It was a fantastic experience. I got to go to Ohio to the Debold plant and I put in a multilingual ATM machine. This was back before doing that was normal and commonplace. Um, and I was able to create some loan funds so that business people can go and access capital. I created a merchants association so that the tenants in the buildings where we owned could band together and fight for things, not only locally with the local government, but band together and do things together as, as, as a group, how they wanted to see their neighborhood look. Um, I helped to persuade small businesses and, and, and drug stores come to the neighborhood able to show them the data like look at all of these people that you're missing out on by not having your drugstore here or talk to restaurateurs look at all of these people you could be selling your food to but you're not yeah. if you move here we'll help you with the rent we'll give you a loan we'll do these things and it was one of the first sparks that occurred on the lower east side of manhattan you remember at the beginning of our conversation I talked about how now it's a vibrant place where you know folks from all over the world go there and with these exorbitant rents. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to think that I was a contributor to creating an environment for that to, to kind of grow from a seed to a plant, to a tree, to some fruit. Um, and then after that, I did the same thing in the Bronx. So I worked in the South Bronx and, and this was when the South Bronx was really the South Bronx, right? Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, crack is in full bloom, heroin is in full bloom, AIDS is in full bloom, poverty. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it was a place that needed a lot of love and attention. I did similar things there in the South Bronx because a board member who was my then mentor and who also happens to be a Black Panther. So he was one of the Black Panthers who, who, who you know, one of those Black Panthers. And he mentored me. So after he got out of prison and after he went to graduate school and after he went to graduate school again, he was working at these nonprofits to do it the right way. Mm -hmm. And he mentored me and he told me, he used to call me young blood. Now that, that if, if you know what I'm saying, you understand what he was saying. He's saying, young blood, we need you. So you need to get all this knowledge and all this information and put it to work, put it to use. And he inspired me, you know, to do more. Sure. And so that was kind of my last stop before I moved to the great state of Texas, which is the greatest state in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and other things happen after that, but that was the transition between college, graduate school, and my first job. Your early career. So when you, you know, you've done all this great work of community building, really truly grassroots community building, uh, what lured you to Dallas uh, or, or to Texas and what was that transition like? So because I had gone to graduate school at UT, you know, I loved Texas when I got here. 
that I can tell you. The reason why I went to UT is because I had a summer program where I was taking some graduate courses at UT. I, I drove down from Ohio with all of my dirty clothes in the back of my car. And when I got the UT, I'm lugging my dirty clothes from the car to the dorm and two random strangers, two girls came up to me and was like, what you doing? I was like, I gotta move in. Do y'all know where there's a laundromat? And they were like, laundromat? I, I think I said a Bendex. <laughs> <laughs> you know where there's a Bendex? And they didn't know what that was. I translated and they was like, why? You just got here. And I said, well, I got to wash my clothes. And these young ladies washed all of my clothes, put the little folder dryer sheets in between the T-shirts and returned it to me. And I was like, man, there's no way I'm leaving. <laughs> that was my first experience in Texas. And after uh, when I was in New York and the Lower East Side and in the Bronx, you know, I did good work. But, you know, everything has a season. So I did the work that was needed for me to do for that season. I knew I wanted to get back to Texas and go to graduate school again and kind of begin my life. And so I moved back just because I knew I didn't want to I didn't want to do that in New York City. I wanted to give back to New York City, but I wanted to be somewhere else to begin life. And then that's what I did. So you moved down to Texas to attend grad school? Well, I moved down to Texas. I, I had I actually had a stint uh, in law school. Okay. And, um, you know, quickly figured out that that wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think I did okay, but it just wasn't for me. It, 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 was, it wasn't as hands-on gritty for me. Yeah. Um, and then... I went to and worked at the city of Dallas, where I did economic development. So, of course, that, that was a natural link for me because I had done economic development in New York City. Of course, if you could do it in New York, you could do it anywhere. Um, and then while I was working at the city of Dallas, I happened to go back to grad school and got my MBA. It, it was more... It was an MBA was more in concert with an MPAFF than a law degree. Remember, we 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 don't practice law; we make it right. And what that really means is we create policies that help impact people's lives. So I've always wanted to help impact people's lives. And when I went to B school, I learned more of kind of the nuts and bolts, accounting and finance things that would allow me to do that. I knew that that was needed. You know, I went to boarding school. I went to all of these fancy schools. You kind of know that uh, expertise in finance is needed, expertise in accounting is needed. How do you communicate business tactics and principles up and down the chain? Um, luckily, because I am um, from where I'm from, I have a, a really good ability to translate common speak into boardroom speak and back and forth and up and down. And so I moved back to Texas to start life, um, but also all along the way at every stop, I learned little bits and pieces of what I needed to be successful here. Um, and so after I got my MBA, uh, 
I got a job at Bank One, which is now Chase. Mm-hmm. I stayed there a bit and then started my uh, 20-year journey at Comerica Bank. So you make this shift and pivot, you know, you're working at the city of Dallas, you now go get um, and earn your a business degree. You head over to Bank One, which becomes Chase. Um, what did Comerica hire you or what position were you hired for when you now commence that journey? And I figure at that point you're about 30. So maybe you're about <laughs> seven years into your career. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, so, you know, when you get your MBA at that point, you're ready to go make some money. Like you're ready to go conquer the world. Right. And so, when I was graduating, I happened to still be at the city of Dallas. I, I was a manager of uh, economic development. I've ran some, some programs, tax increment finance programs. So there's my LBJ uh, credentials helped me there. It was all about using a finance scheme to help development in areas that otherwise would not receive development or at least not as fast. And once I had my, my, my MBA, I was like, I got to go make some money. Mm-hmm. And so I started applying, at, you know, maybe hundreds of companies. This was back before email, internet, and online resume building. Sure. So I'm sending out resumes, sending out resumes. And I, I you know, had to, if I sent out 200 inquiries, uh, job posting responses, I got 100 or 200 notes. Because people didn't connect how my LBJ and city experience and now MBA experience could translate for them at their company. I constantly had to explain myself. I wouldn't have to do that now because people have a more intuitive knowledge base where, you know, a person can be this and be that and do both this and that. But back then, it wasn't the same. Um Luckily, I applied for a job at Bank One, now Chase. So I was uh, with Bank One and I was responsible for community development in the city of Dallas and the surrounding rural communities. So my responsibility, my responsibility uh, encompassed uh, Dallas, Tarrant County, all the way up to Sherman Denison, Texas, mm. east um, past Rockwall to Greenville, Texas, south to Corsicana, Texas. And so I was responsible for community development, economic development on behalf of the bank in those places, forging partnerships with local governments, uh, local nonprofits, et cetera, in those places. And from there, Again, because I had this newly minted MBA, I happened to go to the Black MBA conference in Chicago, I believe it was, and I stopped at uh, the Comerica desk. I gave my resume to a very nice uh, lady. Her name is is Mary O'Dwyer, who happens to still be with the bank. Mm -hmm. And... There were no opportunities for me at Comerica at that time, but Mary kept my resume for a whole year in her desk. So somehow I was able to impress her enough to kind of hold on to my resume. 
And a year later, a job came up at Comerica and I was able to, to, to get the job and I've been there ever since. Wow. So what was that job and kind of walk us through what this uh, 20 year remarkable journey at Comerica has been. So after my time at uh, Bank One Chase, luckily, uh, Ms. O'Dwyer called me about a year after we first met. And she said, hey, I got the perfect job for you. It happened to be right across the street from where I was already working um, uh, at Bank One. And she says, we want you to come and be the state manager for Community Reinvestment Act. And so it was good for me. I happened to get a promotion and a new job at the same time. Um, I began uh, uh, at 2000, August of 2000. Mm-hmm. And my responsibility at my new Comerica job was similar to that of my old Bank One job, except I had people under me, a bigger budget, and I can have more direct community impact. Um, to the markets that Comerica served. And so for uh, the first few years of my career, what I did was kind of build a program. I would teach financial education, develop partnerships with nonprofits, support nonprofits and their programs, particularly if their programs help to support low to moderate income people. This could be housing, this could be economic development, this could be after school program, educational programs, programs for the elderly, et cetera. Um, I was uh, pretty good at doing that. And so I excelled uh, at Comerica doing that. Uh, The next job I had uh, directly after that um, was I was then promoted to manage Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. So then I kind of became a regional manager doing the very same thing. That was my introduction at Comerica. This is how I transitioned from the other guys to the guy. Got it. And so you've taken on this larger role. You're now managing statewide uh, CRA from Comerica. What happens next and how do you sort of start to grow within uh, the organization? So I knew, again, because of my background, right, and I I bring it back to my humble beginnings on the Lower East Side, uh, my boarding school experience, uh, my Oberlin experience, my UT experience, my UD experience. I knew that I wanted to manage and do bigger and better things. I didn't necessarily know what those bigger and better things were, but I knew I just wanted more. I wanted more opportunities, not not necessarily for myself, but I knew that if I use my skills to help other people, then I knew because of the job that things would happen for me. So I continually focused on how can I serve, be of service, provide service to more communities? How can I create deeper relationships within the communities? How do I reach out to the Hispanic community and their issues and their problems? Because I didn't want to be known only for helping African-Americans. I wanted to help the community, right? And so as time went on and opportunities presented themselves to me, then I would take advantage of the opportunity. So I taught Sunday business classes and 
business principal classes, accounting and marketing at the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce on Saturday. I taught uh, and I would do this around even in Houston. This is how you and I know one another. I would get in my car and drive down to Houston and do similar things in Houston then drive to Austin and do that. I, I was really a community focused person. I, 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 I was surprised that Comerica was willing to pay me for something that I thought I'd do for free. And, and so, uh, you know, the first five, 10, 15 years of my career, I really spent building a brand, making a name for myself. I, I, and I hope the name is good. I, I, I think if I were to ask you offline, you know, how'd I do? You would say, brother, you did good, right? And so I think the experiences helping people, helping people learn financial principles, financial education, helping kid, kids learn financial literacy made me a better banker because now I'm able to see the actual problems. I didn't have to read about what other folks thought the problems were. I got to talk firsthand to the owner of the business or talk to you or other people and have you tell me, hey, this is what's going on around here. We need this, we need that. And so over time, I think the bank realized because I was bringing in lots of business, lots of deposits, bringing in new customers as a side note, not, not really my job, but as a banker, that's always your job. And so people, started to recognize me more, right? So if I bring in a 500,000 or a million dollar or $8 million deposit, folks want to know who's that dude? Yeah, Who's doing that? And so I was able uh, with the support of the community and, and I mean the Texas community, the black community, the Hispanic community, I was able to do that. And it made me have more of an impact, not only externally, but internally. Got it. Got it. Excellent. And so you, 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 you've served in these roles. Um, what's been the trajectory for you that drew you to the current role that you now occupy? So the, the trajectory, again, the, the, my base experience, base experience at Comerica, I started off as a Texas CRA manager. Um, where I was responsible for the major cities here in Texas. And then it uh, got expanded to where it included Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. And then after that, I was promoted to um, the, uh, the Texas Community Development Director, um, a bigger role, right? Because when you say community development, that encompasses a little bit more than hand-to-hand -hand combat in the community. This is where I was able to make more decisions about funding, budgets, et cetera. Um, after that, I became the national financial education director for the bank. And so I had responsibility for teaching financial education um, at our five-state footprint. Um, and then after that, I was director of external affairs for the bank. And this is where we did some reorganization to have more impact, be more intentional about our banking services and relationships within the communities we serve. And then December uh, and then January this year, I was promoted again to the chief community officer of Comerica Bank.
And in that role, again, I have responsibility for external affairs, uh, community uh, reinvestment, community investments, services. Uh, I create our bank's lending strategy, uh, particularly in low to moderate income communities, um, responsible for philanthropy, financial education, uh, compliance. Uh, I have a data, uh, a, a data team who, who crunches numbers for me in the bank, a map team that makes maps. And you know, you, you can imagine a whole bunch of technical jargon that I'm not always uh, comfortable with, but I manage the people that are comfortable with that. Um, and I think more importantly, I'm also responsible for our business outreach teams, the market segmentation teams that we call BRG business research, business resource groups, of which there are 19 of them with you know, well over 200 people that are members of these groups. And the responsibility here is to create a specific business relationship between the bank and the communities we serve. So in my community side, that's more partnering with nonprofit and providing the much needed services in low to moderate income areas. But in the business role, this is bringing business into the bank, right? Helping with produce loans and deposits and treasury services and every other banking services, principally to tell the community, we want your business. We want to do business with you. And you know how important this is, particularly this year in the advent of social uh, unrest, right? The, 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 uh, the topic of the day besides the pandemic is this issue. So I'm responsible for this at the bank as well as the other leaders at the bank. I'm just kind of the tip of the spear. Other folks are also responsible because this is not a job for one person. It's like a job for us all. You know, you shared about this great journey. One, I've learned so much more about you and sort of the path that you've uh, navigated this far. If you could sort of go back in time and offer advice to a 20 or 30 year old version of Irv, what advice would that be? So I often get asked that question and from time to time, it, it changes, my answer would change, but I'm gonna stick with the answer, the answer that I think is most appropriate and that I keep coming back to. And that's don't waste too much time going down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Life is too short. The situations that you experience, the experiences are too short to waste time. And what I mean by that is once you know, you know, right? Once you know, that that's a bad relationship, you know, right? Once you know that that boss isn't gonna promote me, you know. Once you know I need to study more, I need to put more into the craft, you know. And so when I say once you know, you know, and don't waste too much time, what I'm saying is manage your time appropriately. I mean, the, the, the one thing that we have a limited amount of is time. And so I think I've done a fairly good job of managing time, uh, devoting not only my personal resources, my brain power, my time to, to projects that I view important, not only to me, but to the bank. 
But if I could tell the young Irv, uh, you know, maybe don't go to law school. That was a waste of time, right? That was a waste of a year. So I learned something there, right? I got some knowledge there, but I could have skipped that and, and, and gone straight to do more efficient things with my time. I would also tell young Irv, read more. And, and I'm an avid reader. I mean, you know, I read all the time, whether it's kind of bank statements, documents, things about the community, Fed reports, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say read more, you know, read more about people, read more about different cultures, read more about psychology, develop your emotional intelligence. And, and I have an extremely high EQ, emotional intelligence. Like, you know, I, I, I'm extremely empathetic and sympathetic. And I think that my experience in the hood, in the projects, growing up the way I did, going to boarding school, then going to fancy liberal school, then going to school in Texas, not once but twice, has given me a well-rounded knowledge base where I know a lot of things, but reading could help, you know, accelerate that. And I know the more you know about other people, other cultures, the more effectively you can serve those people in those cultures. So I would, you know, advise young Herb, those two things, don't waste too much time, read more. Lastly, I would say, uh, and I still believe this, that people need you. Right. You know, it's kind of like Superman's not coming. Right. There's no Batman or Iron Man that's going to swoop in and help folks do what they need done. So you, your team, the people you associate with, your friends are the ones that are going to do it. And remember that when you get down, when the promotion doesn't come your way, Herb, when the job doesn't come your way, Herb, don't give up. Luckily, I haven't, but I will remind young Herb that a little bit more. You know, things are going to happen for you or they won't. They'll either happen or they won't. But what you're responsible for is giving the best of yourself each and every time. So don't shortchange anybody. Don't shortchange any project. Don't shortchange any lesson. Anytime you talk to people. Um, you know, give them the best that you got at that time, because you never know. That might be the last time you see them and you want to create impact for these people. So think of the stories I've told you, all the people that have touched me, that impact me. The fact that I remember Mr. Ron's name 35 years later, 36 years later, wasn't because he did anything on any particular day. It's because he impacted my life so much so that you just can't possibly forget him, right? So I wanna be that, I would tell young or make sure you're that for someone else. That way you get to pay it forward. And, and you know, the, the reward, there's a big reward there besides the money and the fame and the accolades, besides being on podcasts and all of that. And, and, and I'm fortunate to represent a bank that allows me to do these things, but I'm actually more impressed and more conscious of the fact that I impact other people's lives, people I know about and people that I don't. And so I'm thinking about the people that I don't know about. Show up every time, Irv.
20 yeah. year older. You know, you've talked about impacting others. What are your general thoughts around mentorship and how do people, uh, how can people extract the most out of a mentorship or, or sponsorship relationship? So, you know, I, I think mentor mentee relationships and sponsor relationships are two different things, as you know, um, you know, I like whenever I mentor someone, I want them to also mentor me. Right. So today you and I have had some technical glitches. Right. I need to talk to some more young folks that have them hit me the game about how to manipulate data and all of that. They certainly do that, you know, with a blink of an eye. But I don't ever want to be in a position where I think I'm the only one that has something to contribute. Everyone has something to contribute. It's just different things. So as much as I'm giving wisdom and help and knowledge, I want people to give that back to me so that it's a win-win situation. And as far as sponsorship, I think it's my duty to help people achieve their goals. So when I'm when I can, I do it. And I make sure I do it. I don't want anything in return. I sometimes I do it and I don't even let the people know that it was me, right? I just do it because I want to see people live, thrive, and grow. And the Comerica motto is raising expectations. I think that's a leader's job in general, but I want to raise the expectation of what that means, particularly for me as a leader. I want to help people that I know about and that I don't know about, people directly and indirectly, people that only see me on the intranet or the internet. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel that's my responsibility to do that because I'm not going to be here forever, right? Tick, tick, boom. One day it'll come, it'll come, and then boom, I'm out of here. And when I leave, when I leave Comerica, and when I mean the job, I want it to be known or said by my peers, my colleagues, my bosses, the community, a, a simple statement, and then I can drop the mic. And the statement is that brother did his thing. He, you know, and then I'm out. Certainly. So I would um, say this, who are your sounding boards? So, Lalu, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have family, uh, uh, friends, uh, colleagues, mentors at work. Um, my boss uh, is, is a good sounding board for me. She helps keep me kind of on track within bounds when I'm about to do something crazy. She'll kind of rein me back in. Sure. Um, luckily, as part of my position, I happen to report up to the CEO as well. So he's a good sounding board for me because I need to know his directives, right? I need to know where he sees the company going. And then that way I can fall in line behind him and tackle and block and do the things necessary so that he can meet his goals and company goals. I have uh, some very good friends of mine who we're all similarly situated. We all grew up in humble surroundings and backgrounds, et cetera. Uh, you think my story is interesting and fantastic. All of my friends have similar stories. Goes back to birds of a feather kind of flock together. And, um, you know, I draw on them, my family, uh, 
and they help ground me. Um, and, and as you can imagine, you know, as a person that has all of the different types of responsibilities I have, I don't go to the same person for the same thing. I go to this person for this, this person for this, this person, you know, my family for emotional support. I go to my boy who's brilliant because I was like, hey, I don't understand this. I need you to explain this to me, right? And he'll do that. If I have some real estate issues, I go to you, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think that oftentimes when you see or speak to people that are in these positions like I am, you think we have all the answers. You, I can tell you we don't, right? But I'm wise enough to figure out how to find it, who to go to, et cetera. So what's on the horizon for you? What's your long-term big picture? Long-term big picture is to hone in what we've discussed. To I'm, I'm going to raise expectations of what a bank can be in the communities that we serve. I'm gonna do it in a more intentional fashion. I think you, uh, if, if you do a cursory internet search of Comerica and me this year, we've had a lot of highlights. Because of the pandemic, because of social unrest, the bank has kind of doubled down and recommitted itself to serving the community. At the beginning of the year, we had an announcement that we would um, support pandemic relief and to the sum of an additional $8 million. And this has allowed us to take care of Maslow's needs for communities around the country, as well as supporting CDFIs who help support uh, small business growth and development, give out loans, et cetera. A lot of times they can do it much faster than we can. Um, And so I have worked on doing that. I was the manager of the bank's pandemic response this year. There's been lots of press releases and clippings about what we've done. I can honestly tell you that we've done a very good job, at least in my opinion, of recognizing that things need to be done more, right? So the pandemic revealed things to us. Let me tell you what it revealed. It revealed that all of the issues and problems that you and I know about are really there and they're really at the surface. And it's, it's not 10 layers down, it's right there, yeah. right? Whether it be social unrest and equities, uh, race issues, et cetera, food insecurity, where students would get their food from school. You don't really think about that, right? Because you're thinking, oh, they're going to school. They're eating at school. But what happens if you miss a day of school? Now you're missing three meals. Now, who wants to miss three meals? No one, right? Or small businesses, if you can't serve at the wine bar or at the barbershop. Like, how many of us can operate two or three months without income? Right. And so while I knew that, I really know that now. Right. And so what I have to do as a leader at the bank is make sure that we implement policies, processes, procedures, double down on helping those folks teach more financial education, more financial literacy, teach classes about elder abuse prevention so that old folks don't get taken advantage of during these times. Because, as you know, during these times is when they would get taken more advantage of. Yeah. Um, And so those are the sorts of things that I'm going to work on and double down on as it relates to serving diverse communities. We also announced this year that we have committed uh, $10 million to deposit in minority deposit institutions. 
you have one great one there in your city, Unity Bank, right? And so this is another way how we can help serve, right? Because as you know, banks use deposits to provide financial services in the community, right? And, and to their community, loans and et cetera. And so we're doing that and some other things I'm not quite ready to share with you, but more is on the way. Good, good stuff, man. This has been great. Um, you know, we're, we're ready to pretty much conclude the interview. So I'll just ask sort of a final question if there, not really a question, if there are any closing thoughts or comments that you want to share. Well, I just want to say thank you. Of course, you, you've given me an opportunity to tell you a little bit about my story uh, and opine. I was, I was flattered that you wanted to interview me because, you know, in many ways, I'm still that kid from the projects, right? So I'm thinking this is, you know, why me sort of thing. Um, but I can tell you that the platform that you've given me here today to not only tell my story, I'm hoping that it, I inspired somebody. One of y'all out there gonna hear the story about Irv. I'm, I'm hoping that that inspires you. I'm hoping that I've demystified uh, banking and bankers. I mean, all of you, if you've never met a chief, blah, 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 now you have. I think I'm fairly normal, uh, fairly approachable. I'm still a brother, et cetera. And I want you to know not only that Comerica Bank wants to do business with you, but financial institutions want to do business with you. We just have to figure out a way to connect. So I hope this interview will serve that and, and offer a source of connection. Absolutely, man. This is um, this has been refreshing. Uh, it's been great to uh, learn your story, Irv. You shared some incredible uh, nuggets of wisdom. Talk about the practicality of surviving in America, and really acknowledging uh, the tremendous nature of this very country we all call home. You've talked yeah. about the importance of being open-minded and willing to take a chance um, and understanding and recognizing you never know where that blessing might come from. Uh, it might not come from someone that looks like you might come from someone who does look like you, right. but the willingness to take that first step made all the difference uh, for you. You talked about, you know, systemic barriers that you have to be able to navigate and overcome in spite of, you've talked about, you know, the, you know, tremendous importance of the kind of education that you got and being able to have a well-rounded background. You've talked about the importance of travel and seeing the world, recognizing your place in the world and the affirmation of understanding that ancestral tie to greatness. And you've talked to us about the importance of banking uh, and the role that banks play in our community and uh, the important responsibility that they do have to continue to show up these communities. Uh, my guest today has been Irvin Ashford, Jr., Chief Community Officer of Comerica Bank. My name is Lalu Davis-Yamitin, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. <laughs>